Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Jiao Wang, Interim Director at the China Institute, University of Alberta. In this episode, we talk about the focus of the China Institute, as well as how the Canada-China relationship has evolved since the 1950s, how China and Canada can recover from their strained relationship that has reached a low point since December 2018, and how the relationship between Canada and China may look 10 years from now. What lessons can Canada and other Western countries learn from China, especially when it comes to spurring on economic growth? We talk about the common misconceptions about China in the North America academic environment, as well as the key differences between the two academic environments of China and that of North America. Enjoy. We may have to come to the understanding and China is rising and China is here to stay. It is impossible to try to decouple from China and try to isolate China as if it were the 50s. So we do have to find a path forward and um, and we do have to have a strategy that is more forward looking and uh, to include China in the global discussion on how to tackle some of the pressing global issues and also perhaps persuade China to work within global organizations to help solve some of the other global issues like poverty, global health crisis. And at the same time, hopefully the West and China could peacefully coexist. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Jia, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much, Todd, for having me. It's my honor to be here. So to start off, how about a quick introduction of yourself and the work that you do? What is the China Institute and why is it at the U of A? How long has it been functioning and what does it aim to accomplish? Well, my name is uh, Jia Wang. I'm the interim director of the China Institute. Uh, I'm currently uh, kind of doing two jobs at the same time. So I'm the interim director, also the uh, deputy director. So um, I pretty much um, manage the whole institute. Our institute is quite unique. It is the one and only in Canada that focus solely on China studies. And we do a lot of work that look at the diplomatic relations between China and Canada, and also the global influence of a rising China, especially in the economic sense, but also uh, in on security issues and, uh, and political and even cultural and social dimensions. So our institute, although it's based uh, at the University of Alberta, it doesn't just focus on Alberta issues uh, with China. It looks at broader China studies. 
uh, how it's fun, uh, how it's really established in the first place is uh, quite interesting. So the Institute uh, came into being in 2005. We're really fortunate to have a um, pair of um, visionaries, uh, Mr. Sandy and uh, Mrs. Cecile McTaggart. So the McTaggarts, they really, um, they were the, basically the, the reason why the China Institute is here with us today. In uh, just, just before 2005, uh, Mr. Sandy McTaggart, um, he was the um, chancellor at the university. Um, he decided, along with his wife, to donate about a thousand pieces of rare uh, art pieces, uh, paintings, textiles, and other artifacts uh, from East Asia, mainly from China, uh, to the University of Alberta Museums. Uh, at the time, their collection is one of the finest uh, private collection of East Asian arts. With this collection, Mr. Sandy McTaggart really hope that the establishment of the Chinese uh, China Institute would be able to, in his own words, to help Alberta and, and Canada rise to the occasion to better understand China, this, this um, rising global power. And that's a lot of similarities with the aim of this podcast is to really just kind of bridge that cultural divide uh, and lack of understanding uh, just because the two worlds have been separated and are incredibly different. And uh, I think it behooves everybody to start beginning to understand uh, both um, equally and as well. So I, I'm very curious after you explain all of that, and it's fascinating. Thank you so much. What is your background and how did you end up, why did you end up wanting to take this role and where does your work specifically focus? I was born and raised in Beijing, um, although I'm the first generation Beijing or as they call it. My parents are not from Beijing. My dad's mm -hmm. from the ancient city of Suzhou and my mom is from uh, Qingdao in Shandong province, where a lot of people probably have tasted or tried Qingdao beer. Mm -hmm. um, so I was born and raised in Beijing and growing up in Beijing, although it is now a very much international city, um, a, a city with, uh, with uh, people from all around the world lived and worked there. And uh, when I was growing up, though, um, it wasn't quite like that. Uh, you still see uh, an ocean of bicycles <laughs> on the street um, and uh, and crystal blue skies and um, and people in uh, rather dull uh, clothing, uh, not the colorful ones that people seems to enjoy now. Um, but because my dad, uh, he's a professor and he also later became a um, researcher in international film studies. And he introduced me to the outside world, especially the Western English speaking world. So um, at a time when most Chinese people cannot really watch um, foreign films, um, I got the chance to see quite a few foreign films on cassette tapes, uh, well, VHS tapes. And I was quite fascinated about the 
outside world. Um, so I had hoped to perhaps go overseas and study um, um, from an early age. So it, it just seems natural to me. Um, so when I went to uh, the university, uh, university, Peking University in uh, Beijing, I actually I had a choice of um, either going to um, international relations or archaeology because I actually I'm quite interested uh, in both. And I decided uh, to study international relations, um, although I, I'm still still fascinated by, by ancient history, especially ancient Chinese history. Um, so after graduating, um, I decided to go study overseas and I applied uh, to universities in the States, but also Canada. And um, eventually I came to uh, Canada and studied um, at the U of T. And that was my very first trip overseas. I never left China before that point. So it's um, it was uh, just a fascinating experience for me. And um, later I, um, um, I guess, fell in love with a, a Canadian um, um nice Canadian guy who happened to be from Edmonton. So we met in Toronto and I uh, traveled with him uh, to Edmonton and, and um, started living here. Uh, and I also worked in um, a multicultural media TV station for a couple of years um, as a reporter producer and um yeah, later joined the University of Alberta at the China Institute um, ever since. So I have been here for about 10 years. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoy uh, working here. We have such a dynamic, but also multicultural team mm -hmm. with team members from um, Canada, of course, but also China, uh, many different parts of China, and, and also other team members from uh, with a background in Europe, in the Middle East, uh, in Africa. So it's a truly wonderful team. And uh, I, I'm just feeling so privileged to be uh, leading a lot of the projects, uh, our activities, and also uh, leading our team and to focus on uh, Canada-China relations and also uh, the study of China on the global stage. So is that the focus then of the work of your work, of your team's work and and really what the China Institute is about? Um, is is that your focus? It is in, indeed uh, my focus and also the focus of my team. We try to um, do policy related or policy relevant studies that is uh, applicable to the real world as China gaining increasing importance on the global stage, both economically, but also um, uh, on the international relations front. Uh, we want to help Canadians and maybe beyond, even beyond Canada. We want to help people in the Western world to better understand where China is coming from, uh, what the country is doing, and, uh, and also maybe hopefully to use that information to help policymakers and uh, and even the public to better understand China and also to better manage the relationship between Canada and China. I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about the Canada-China relationship historically. 
How has it evolved, say, you know, or how did it evolve between the 1950s and then 2000? And then post 2000 to 2010, um, and I'm, I'm intentionally putting some, you know, some interesting mile markers, you know, uh, in here. And then again, 2010 to 2018. So if you, if you don't mind me kind of breaking it up from the 50s to the 2000, then 2000 to 2010, and then maybe after 2000 up until, say, 2018 or so, if you don't mind. Sure. Before, really before the establishment of the bilateral uh, diplomatic relations, um, in the 70s, um, there was some interactions between China and Canada, but there wasn't a lot. Um, so one notable um, event I, I would note is uh, in the 50s, well, late 50s, um, really throughout the 60s, uh, Canada has um, basically Canada had agreed to sell wheat to China. Uh, and at a time when China was really very much isolated from the rest of, wor- of the world, especially the Western countries. Um, and also during the 60s, uh, late 50s to 60s, um, China had really um, encountered or f- faced with um, multiple um, natural but also man-made disasters that led to um famines in in China. So the wheat exports from Canada um, were were just very important um, and uh, in helping China get through uh, the famine and get through the extreme difficulties in in the 60s. Um, And also one interesting fact is um, uh, the um, Chinese, uh, the the Canadian prime minister, that is who established the diplomatic relations with China, uh, Mr. Right Honorable Pierre Trudeau. He first went to China in 1949, uh, later returned in in 1960. So he actually visited China twice, uh, of course, before he became the prime minister. So he was pretty fascinated about China um, and he traveled to China uh, with a friend, and he later uh, wrote a book um, about that uh, experience, and it was uh, fascinating. And maybe not surprisingly, later he became the first prime minister to officially visit China, and also, of course, to um, open the diplomatic relationship with China um, in 1970, in, in, in the year of 1970. Um, so from 1970 uh, onwards um, to perhaps 1990, uh, the bilateral relations between China and Canada, it was kind of steady. There were uh, exchanges of uh, high-level visits. There, there was uh, some expansion of trade. Um before the 70s, really, the trade between the two countries is just wheat exports from Canada to uh, China. But after that, um, trade expanded to other materials, um, other goods, mostly raw materials, um, until uh, after 1990, um, from 1990 onwards, uh, the bilateral economic relationship 
especially trade volume, really uh, grew um, exponentially. Um, so yeah, the two countries are growing um, closer um, as it comes to economic ties, and uh, and then of course eventually um, China became Canada's uh, second largest uh, trading partner um, in the in the year um, I remember too about in the 90s early 90s um, uh, um, Prime Minister uh, Jean Chrétien had led multiple um, they call it Team Canada trade missions to China and um, some of them are uh, huge. Um, each mission could be uh, consisted of over 500 um, people in business and also those uh, senior government uh, delegates. So uh, that's um, uh, that's quite an era where the two countries are growing closer uh, in, in its relationship. Um, one Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, um, came to power there's a significant cooling period um, of this uh, bilateral relations um, from about 2006 to late 2009 um, that uh, the two countries' uh, uh, relationship haven't been uh, very warm and there, there are only very limited exchanges and, um, um, and economic relationship is also at bit of a standstill. Um, but from late 2009 in December, when uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper visited China for the first time, uh, things he became Prime Minister, the relationship started to thaw. So there was a, a period of time where um, the two countries are growing um, a little bit closer together and trade continued to expand. Um, so that's lasted um, pretty much until uh, things uh, reach its freezing point again in late 2018 um, because of the uh, Canadian arrest on behalf of the U.S. Uh, of Huawei's uh, CFO, Meng Wanzhou. Everyone knows that December 2018, we had a bit of a low point, right? And uh, it's, it's been a strained relationship you know, for the last three years or so. And without dwelling on that too much, we seem to actually be emerging from that strained relationship part and now starting to move forward a bit. Is there a, a way that the relationship could potentially have a have a reset or that we can achieve a, a clean slate? And then if so, at this point, what needs to happen for that to take place in your opinion? Well, indeed, many observers uh, would like to see the this still important bilateral relationship um, kind of get a restart or at least uh, improve from one of the low points um, in history. So it does probably take some effort for that to happen. Uh, some people would argue, oh, after uh, Meng is uh, back in China and uh, the two Michaels. Uh, safely back home in Canada, maybe things would just uh, magically go back to where it was. Um, the truth is, it's probably not going to happen quite like that and, and just overnight. Um, 
the two countries were at a better place prior to 2018. They were even talk about a potential free trade agreement. Uh, but I think we have long departed from that point. Many of us um, in in Canada and perhaps in China who are keen observers of this relationship probably want to see improvement uh, in this relationship uh, because there's no doubt uh, China is an important uh, country and uh, it's important for Canada and for its ex- economic future as well. So we don't want to see the two countries, you know, really are stuck in this strain or or a relationship that is um, um, quite um, fraught. We want to see at least the two countries can find ways to work together. Uh, So hopefully that will happen. I think um, it will take some effort on both parts, uh, on both sides, uh, the Canadian and the Chinese sides to come together, maybe to at least restart uh, some of the high level dialogues and um, and interactions. Uh, for example, they are uh, dialogues uh, set up for the two country to have annually uh, on climate issues, uh, on um, uh, law and order issues and uh, and and even um, uh, even higher maybe um, pr- premier prime minister level uh, dialogue if some of those high level exchanges can resume i think that's a very good first step uh, we do need to know what china is thinking and, and hoping to do and then of course china probably need to know uh, what uh, canada is hoping to do for this relationship without a dialogue we just cannot move forward so i, I really hope to see more of these type of dialogues uh, will uh, resume and and also for the two countries to perhaps um despite all the difficulties and differences to find those common grounds um, such as uh, climate change, environment, environmental uh, uh, conservation uh, issues, and, and even potentially uh, to seek um, opportunities to collaborate on global public health and managing of the uh, global pandemic. And so there are these areas where the two countries can work together and should work together. Um, but we do need to uh, see some efforts on both sides to at least um, showing the willingness uh, to re-engage. But at the same time, of course, Canada is a middle power. So this very important relationship um, between China and the U.S., arguably one of the most Mm -hmm. important bilateral relationship on earth, uh, that will have impact on how we engage with China and how we can move forward. So um, we do have to factor that in as there's an African proverb, uh, maybe describe the situation Canada is in is uh, one, uh, two elephants fight is the grass that get hurts, um, get hurt. So we don't necessarily want to be in that position. Um, and I think Canada would like to see can, uh, the U.S. and China can work together on uh, some of the global issues and uh, and also keep their differences in check rather than um, evolve into some sort of conflicts. 
But that is a little bit beyond our control. But what is in our control, I think, is to um, find a way, find a path forward by re-engaging um, at a senior level um, and restart the dialogues. I can't think of another country that is somewhat more at the mercy of that relationship. Uh, you know, we are definitely the grass. We are so closely tied to China and so closely tied to the U.S. I can think of only maybe the U.K. relationship as being even remotely close to the types of relationship we have with there. Of course, economically, we are so reliant upon the U.S., but then also uh, China as well as as are many countries around the world. So you're absolutely right. If I may ask just quickly, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but 10 years from now, what do you foresee as the relationship between Canada and China? Well, I wish I had a crystal ball. Um, unfortunately, I don't. What I'm hoping to see is a place where countries like Canada, China and the U.S. And, and the rest of the world can come together to really collaboratively um, working on things that is pressing, um, such as climate change, but at the same time could perhaps be a bit more tolerant of, of each other's uh, differences. I think China will always have a very different set of values and maybe a governance style uh, than Canada and, and the rest of the Western countries. And China is often feeling kind of anxious and, and uh, that China can be misunderstood. Um, although that argument uh, may not always be valid because there are certain areas and certain things probably China definitely needs to Im improve upon. But for the Western countries, I think we may have to come to the understanding and China is rising and China is here to stay. It is impossible to try to decouple from China and try to isolate China as if it were the 50s. So we do have to find a path forward and, um, and we do have to have a strategy that is more forward looking and uh, to include China in the global discussion on how to tackle some of the pressing global issues and, and also perhaps to persuade China to work within global organizations to help solve some of the other global issues um, like poverty, global health crisis, and, and, and at the same time, hopefully the West and China could peacefully coexist. I wanted to ask, and potentially recognizing that we're talking about completely different political and economic systems, and that I tend to find that the rest of the world kind of points and shouts at China to do certain things, you know, improve your charity, improve your humanitarian, improve your environmental, do these kinds of things. You don't find China doing that to a lot of other countries in the world. And I think that potentially the rest of the world can be too busy pointing and shouting and asking for, for change from China instead of potentially picking up some of the things that they can learn from China and change themselves. So I'm wondering, what are some of the things that Canada and really some of the rest of the world, what can they learn from China? And specifically, what can they use to maybe spur their own economic growth over the next 20 years? Well, as you mentioned, there are vast differences um, um, 
when it comes to China and the Western countries, uh, values, uh, governance, uh, you name it. But I think what um, what China is doing well um, that may or may not be uh, necessarily uh, something that can be adapted by by other countries um, is China's ability to. Um, concentrate and stay focused and, and make those long-term plans um, once uh, it sees uh, certain priorities needs to be accomplished. Um, during a pandemic, of course, this may not be the perfect example, uh, but it's a time of crisis um, where China, of course, um, stumbled uh, at the beginning of, uh, of this uh, managing the pandemic. Uh, but the country quickly come together and um, and people are, uh, or at least most people are pretty much buying into uh, the government's uh, measures, very strict measures uh, to try to contain the, the virus. Um, and, uh, and then maybe by comparison, China has managed to contain the virus maybe more effectively than some other countries. Um, but I think it's, there is still a bit of that, um, trust in the government, maybe more of that in China. It probably has something to do with the with the Chinese history and how the country has been managed by a central government of some sort uh, for more than two thousand years. Um, so people seems to have a bit more faith in the government and uh, in the way government decide what's best for the country and what best for its people and people would buy into it um, and uh, and then act upon it. Um, and that type of maybe trust, um, well, hopefully, of course, the government is making the, the right decision, um, would help to uh, really concentrate resources to tackle some of the tough issues like a pandemic and and also the um, uh, environmental problems and, and climate change issues. Um, and that is something um, it's harder to achieve in Western countries. If anything, we learned from the past couple of years um, and, uh, and also from perhaps uh, the U.S. under Trump administration is there's a significant erosion of uh, trust of people in in their government um, when people can't even uh, put their support uh, or or even accept the legitimate result of a election, like in the, in the U.S. Uh, case, uh, it, it is really problematic when the society is so divided, uh, when everything becomes political. Um, it is really difficult difficult for the country to move forward and, and to focus on some of these big pressing uh, issues that the country face and that the world face. Um, so I think that is um, something maybe China is, is doing better. But I think because, because of our very different uh, past or history and also political model, um, this might not be something easily achievable um, by, by the Western democracies. Um, but hopefully there are some ways that um, Western societies can find um, some means to 
mend the differences and, and, and to have the society come together, um, at least when it comes to some major um, pressing issues. Um, hopefully that will um, uh, point the country to the, to the, to the right direction. You spend time in the North American academic environment, let's say, uh, spend a lot of time studying the economic and political dimensions of modern day China. What do you think most people misunderstand about today's China? A couple of things come to mind. Many people, when they don't know too much about China, the country, they tend to think it is a country that is highly homogeneous. People think the same, everybody's doing the same things, but actually there's a lot of differences uh, exist in China. Uh, Regional differences, even uh, city and rural area divide. You probably will find a lot of commonalities between city dwellers in China, in in Beijing or uh, Shanghai, with their counterparts in New York or Toronto or, or Edmonton. So a lot of people don't recognize that uh, China is not one ironclad where everybody's thinking the same and behaving the same. There's a lot of divergences and a lot of differences. So I think that's maybe one of the common misunderstandings among Westerners. Another thing I can think of is China's ambition sometimes can be misinterpreted. I still believe, and, and some other observers uh, may also think so, is China's ambition is more economically focused, even it's maybe some uh, seen as a military ambition, is still focused within a sort of the neighborhood of, of China. And, and part of the rationale is to safeguard a safe environment, at least for China, uh, to maintain its ability to grow economically. And China, of course, uh, has been investing all around the world and has been doing business with uh, so many countries. And China is the top trading partner for over 120 countries in the world. But you don't see China maybe talk as much about its um, its political model, its, uh, its governance model, uh, or its values as much. Sometimes talk about China's economic growth model and uh, and some other countries are interested in that type of growth model, but you don't see China on a global stage promoting, advocating other countries to adopt its governance model or really trying to become this um, dominant power beyond sort of economic um, prowess. So I think there's some misunderstanding where people think um, China is really going to rise and take over the world. Um, Rise, yes, but perhaps not a global ambition to become uh, the number one country other than economically. So I think there's a maybe a bit of a misunderstanding. Another one um, I can think of is people, especially in the Western countries, tend to argue uh, that China is, uh, or China is not uh, having enough innovation and uh, it's um, somehow stealing trade secrets and uh, having IP issues. I I think indeed there were some um, issues and some wrongdoings uh, on China's part. But 
as we look back into the history, uh, China was behind about half of pre-industrial innovations and technologies in the world. And the country is seeing uh, it's going back to its past glory. Uh, but even when it comes to innovation, I think China is uh, doing more and uh, the country is filing more patent in the world for, for the past six to seven years. And uh, there are innovations um, and a lot of it coming from China. When we talk about technology exchange and trade and all that between China and the West, it's not a one-way street anymore. And it's often a two-way track where China is still learning from the West. But on the other hand, the West is probably learning and maybe or could be learning more from China as China's leading uh, on many of the newer technological fronts. So that's something maybe not everybody is paying attention to. I think China is still pretty eager to learn. Um, and, uh, and perhaps the West can also take a closer look at China and see what the West can learn from China and China's experience. That's a good point. Now, you studied at Peking University, which, for those who do not know, it is one of the most prestigious and academically acclaimed and rigorous institutions of higher learning in China uh, and potentially the whole world. And now you are teaching at an academic institution. You're not teaching, but you are working at and involved at an academic institution in Canada, the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Can you outline potentially a few of the key differences between just the academic environments in China and North America? Sure. Um, I think there are indeed uh, differences. Although I have uh, left the Chinese academic environment um, about two de decades ago. So um, I think the academic environment in China uh, has evolved from uh, the time that I left. Um, so just from my experience um, studying in China uh, in Peking University, um, I noticed that um, it's, it's still more of a um, sort of a lecture and then you take notes and then you, you, you do your exams type of um, learning and uh, teaching experience uh, where the Western countries, uh, Canada, for example, uh, the university is uh, offering that environment that you are more actively taking part in the learning process. And uh, when you go to a class, uh, the professors will normally give you something to, to think about, but he or she won't go through the textbook and the uh, Often they, they won't engage in a very long lecture. They would ask you to actively uh, offer your take on the textbook or on the topic uh, of the day. And, uh, and then class participation, even group projects are uh, key to that uh, learning process. Where in China, at least traditionally, is still more a classroom um, type of learning where the uh, professors would do long lectures and then you take notes in their occasional participation, but that is not a key part um, of that um, 
teaching and learning style. So for many Chinese students who first came to North America, myself included, I found it's uh, quite eye-opening to certainly to have to take a very active part uh, in in class discussions and um, and to also learn from your peers. And in China, that's a very different style. Um, so um, yeah, that's um, I would say a key uh, difference that I, I noticed. But of course, things are changing, things are evolving. Uh, I think more participation in China in Chinese classrooms have become available, and also the experience of at least in Canada, the experience of higher learning uh, is also an experience that will expose our students to international learning and teaching uh, environment where uh, many professors are from uh, elsewhere, not not Canadian, and students here, uh, like at the UV, about 10% of the student population are international. So you do get to... Uh, have a lot of exposure to different ways of thinking from other parts of the world. Uh, in China, I think increasingly they are more uh, international students, but overall, most campuses you won't you won't see uh, as many international faces uh, on campus. So your uh, learning experience is more limited with your peers uh, within China. It could be many different parts of China, but it's mostly China. So there is um, that difference as well. Jia Wang, Interim Director, China Institute, University of Alberta. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.